0: I vividly remember a summer day many years ago accompanying my dad as he made his way through a subdivision north of Philadelphia, sharing the gospel from door to door and inviting people to our church. I remember this day because I've been to many homes in door to door evangelism through the years. This was the only time that the police ever stopped us. It was a little bit unnerving, but as we were making our way from one house to the next, walking down the street, a squad car pulled up and surprised us by indicating that we were the ones he wanted to talk to as the officer got out. He never accused us of violating any ordinances or laws. He did not demand that we stop. He did deliver a mild lecture insisting that we respect people's differing religious beliefs. I thought that was rather odd for a police officer to be delivering such a lecture. We had done that. We would continue to do that. But here he is delivering the speech on religious pluralism on a city street. As he fulfilled his duties to protect the peace and the prosperity of the community that he served, he felt this was an appropriate lecture for two religious nuts that couldn't find a better way to spend a beautiful day. But that a police officer would pontificate on the need to respect religious pluralism is not so hard to believe when we recognize that biblical Christianity stands at this critical balance between two convictions that the world cannot reconcile. Let me illustrate these convictions just by putting you in a scene that may bring it home a little bit. Imagine that you are sitting before a news reporter. And You're being interviewed and the reporter says this question. Number one. Are you a law abiding government respecting? Loyal citizen of the United States who has no interest in overtaking the government or inciting social upheaval But you always have the best interest of the United States in view What would you say? absolutely certainly question number two do you believe that Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler of the universe to whom every knee must bow and whose authoritative word everyone on earth is morally obligated to obey and whose moral purity everyone must emulate? And you say, absolutely. And they say, you're nuts. Right? They don't know how to reconcile these two concepts. Law-abiding, law-abiding, Government-loving citizens who long to be at peace with the world in which they live and yet who continue to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and everyone must submit to Him. Biblical Christianity has never sought to conquer governmental or economic systems. It has never sought to be anything other than a benefit to the society in which it finds itself. But when Christians proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that exclusive message assaults many of the idols in whatever culture we find ourselves. And it's only a matter of time before someone takes offense. When the gospel has free course to conquer hearts, it will shake the foundational structures of power and prosperity in which people find their security. And when that happens, on a small scale, such as I've illustrated, or on a large scale, the guardians of the social order are going to react. And we witness today such a reaction on a very large scale as we come to Ephesus again on Paul's third missionary journey here in Acts chapter 19. If you're not there in your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Acts chapter 19, you will remember recounts Paul's mission at Ephesus, which was the pinnacle of his missionary work. Ephesus is Paul's longest recorded mission in a synagogue, chapter 19 and verse 8. He's there for three months before he has to leave. Very long stay. It is his longest evangelistic ministry in any given city. Ephesians chapter 19, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 19 and verse 10 as he is there for two years just at the hall of Tyrannus, along with other time on either side it would appear, at least on the front side. The conclusion of this ministry at Ephesus we find in 19.20 of Acts. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And we're missing all of this if we don't get the understanding that this is a significant stop for Paul, a place of great importance in his mission as it is in the center of this third missionary journey, really in a sense taking up most of it, this is the pinnacle of that ministry. As we mentioned last week at verse 20, there's this thematic phrase which marks the end of the previous four tracts and brings to close this fifth tract of Acts. It's kind of put together with these thematic statements that summarize or give us a break at that point in Acts. And so the final lap of this journey of Paul getting from Jerusalem ultimately to Rome begins here at 19 and verse 21. What is odd is that the last episode in Ephesus gets linked in with this last track of Paul's writing. There's something interesting going on there. You would think he would just finish up the work at Ephesus, bring that section to a close, and move on. Remember, we're very tied to trip 1, 2, and 3. Luke isn't quite so worried about that. Here he puts in this last episode of Ephesus, and he links it with the last track of Acts, and it seems that this episode itself then serves as something of a promatic thematic statement. What is also odd here is Paul does not make a speech, and we don't even see Paul involved in evangelistic activity. All of that is very strange, and it should catch our attention. What we should understand then from this point forward is that this episode is going to stand at the head of this last final lap of Paul the evangelist in the history of Acts. And as we consider that and look at all that is considered from 19.1 to the end of the book, realizing the amount of material that is given here, we also recognize that Luke has a decided purpose in this section of Scripture. This section, I think, is particularly apologetic in nature. It is less theological in nature, and it is more... Apologetic in nature. That is, Luke is writing to Christians. Luke is also writing to unbelievers. And he is hoping that his writings will fall under the eye of Roman government officials. This seems to be fairly obvious in the way that he structures the remainder of the book. This is also an agenda that was very prevalent among the first Christians as they tried to work their way through waves of persecution. Now, pagans and Jews had a whale of a time trying to figure Christianity out in these early days. They called it the way, and it was a weird way. There was no temple, there were no priests, there were no rituals, there were no sacrifices. How do you understand these people, these Christians that follow this way? Well, Luke labors to present Christianity as a legitimate religion that is no threat to the governing authorities, while at the same time bringing that concept to bear that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We always live with that tension as Christians. We believe it's a both and. The world thinks it's an either or. But Luke lays his text out very much that way, and I think we have much to gain from it. So Luke stands at this point of critical balance. The government and social structures of the culture are in and of themselves not in danger because of the Christian teaching and are in absolute danger because of the Christian teaching. But the issue is if Jesus Christ is Lord, let everything bow to Christ. There were people at Ephesus who believed they saw right through this problem. They saw right through this position, and they offered stiff resistance. But before we get to that issue, we first, as we head into this final lap of the book of Acts, we need to see Paul's missionary agenda as it's laid out in these first two verses. Verse 21 of chapter 19. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul will finish out this third journey by sailing across the Aegean to Greece. He is centered here at Ephesus. And we will cross the Aegean as you see this red line here. we will work his way down through. We remember the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. He'll work his way down. This is Macedonia to Achaia and the important city of Corinth as he will minister there and will deepen and strengthen the churches on his way. Then he will go back through again strengthening the believers and will make his way by sea back to Jerusalem His goal then will eventually be to go across westward to Italy and to Rome, somewhere over here. And then ultimately he wants to use Rome as his new base to work his way down into Spain, which would have been the frontier of civilized Europe at that point in time. Going beyond there would have been pretty difficult and and not at this place for Paul in his journeys. That was his agenda. Now we realize that God's going to change that agenda in one sense. He's not going to arrive in uh, Rome in the way that he anticipates, but that's his overall agenda. And it's important for us, as we look at verse 21 here, to recognize that this is his plan from this point forward. Right now, however, he's finishing off this lengthy stay right here at the city of Ephesus. And I'd like you to note here, we'll go away from the map in a moment. But you see the Aegean Sea and you see in this area here there are great plains that produced great uh, fertile soil and great abundance and so it made Ephesus a very wealthy community. We'll talk about that later, but there were also roads that were running to and from Ephesus connecting it to this area and the gospel is spreading widely through this area as Paul ministers here. But he's going to bring this to a close and he wants to make his way ultimately to Rome. Verse 22, "...having sent into Macedonia then two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while." What does that mean? These two go across the Aegean ahead of him, To prepare the way for his continued ministry, he stays here at Ephesus, perhaps ministering in other cities in this region, this Roman region of Asia. Not Asia as we understand it, but the Roman region of Asia. Sending them ahead to prepare the way. The response in Ephesus at this point had been utterly remarkable. But now we come to this last scene. And it sets the agenda for the rest of the book. What takes place here at Ephesus is also remarkable, not only in response to the Gospel positively, but negatively. Verse 23, About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, obviously, the Christian way of life. The disturbance in view was sparked, verse 24, by a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And by the way, the Greek there is is, uh, difficult to translate, but probably those in the same kind of business would be a good translation. And he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Read between the lines. And you see and hear, verse 26, that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not not gods. Those are fighting words. Preaching one God and Jesus as Lord, Paul persuaded many in Ephesus to abandon their worship of idols. The response was so great that Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths were frightened for their livelihood. Their craft was to pour molten silver into molds. And those molds would be formed into the image of the temple of Artemis, probably also including an idol there. And people would use these uh, silver works as amulets, they'd wear it around their body, or as souvenirs, they would visit Ephesus to worship Artemis and go home and put it on a shelf or hide it somewhere and remember their visit, or they were used as offerings to simply put down at the temple of Artemis. I always, nobody ever answered this question, but I always wonder what did they do once they left them there. I think the silversmiths had a way of kind of eating up Artemis' offerings, I have a feeling, but at any rate, they were used in one of these ways. This is what these men do for a living. Demetrius and company made good money on this craft, indeed. And Paul's preaching of the gospel was beginning to affect their bottom line. They did not like this at all. Now here, I'd like to take just a brief journey, because it will help us so much, I think, into Ephesus. And just to get kind of the lay of the land. It's very vital. Just to get a sense of what this upheaval is all about. This is a picture of the ancient harbor as the city was built around it. Right here was a massive street called the Arcadian Way. It had beautiful columns on either side, colonnades, uh, porches on either side, but uh, columns along the side, and it was just a beautiful huge street with buildings all around. Not every building in Ephesus is pictured here. But this street led in this beautiful setting from the sea right into a grand Colosseum, a magnificent Colosseum that's been unearthed and much of it is remaining yet this day. A massive stadium that seated some 24,000 people. It's kind of the lay of the land and there's a lot going on here. The temple of Artemis is outside of the city, about a mile and a half, but was the major point of worship. But let me mention first of all this harbor. There's, as I mentioned, a rich hinterland that produced food to the east. The harbor on the Aegean Sea at the mouth of the Castor River positioned Ephesus as a great commercial center linking the Greco-Roman world to these fertile Asian plains. The problem was that this harbor on the river was filling up with silt. The the great soil all around was coming down into the harbor and was filling it up and, and At this point in time, Ephesus was in trouble economically. Now, there was a harbor called Miletus that had this very history taken place. They they were further down the road. Miletus had been the great city, and Ephesus was kind of second tier until Miletus's harbor began to fill up with, with topsoil and silt. And so the Ephesians had seen this happen before, and they knew what this meant. We are in trouble economically, if our harbor someday leaves us. Now I'd like you to look at a contemporary picture of Ephesus. Here's the Arcadian Way, You kind of see the columns and the width of this grand street. Right here, this red line is the ancient harbor. You can see this pretty short distance between the Colosseum and the harbor. Out here on the horizon, seven miles away is where the harbor is today. So all this, this silt and topsoil has run off into this area, the harbor's gone, and Ephesus, as you can see, is now an archeological site, not a thriving city. But in that day, the harbor was still here, and there, that was the fear that all of Ephesus shared. As I mentioned, a mile and a half outside of the city was the great temple of Artemis. Here, a reconstruction. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now keep putting this together. With commerce in decline because of its suffering harbor, tourism was the major economic support for Ephesus. The temple served as a bank for the region and also served as a safe harbor for criminals, both of them bringing people and money to the city. But probably most importantly was the great month Artemisian, an entire month that was spent 24-7 in the worship of Artemis. People would flock into town to worship this goddess who was trusted as one to provide safety for those that worshipped her. And Ephesus particularly, as the home of Artemis, the Ephesians believed everything that they did hinged on the protection of Artemis. For an entire month, people would come and celebrate, coming from all the regions around to Ephesus. And in this month-long celebration, one commentator says, a celebration in honor of the goddess, each spring, crowds would flood into the city for athletic games, plays, concerts, banquets, and other festivities. I can say it mildly, it was a time of much wickedness. Imagine a month-long holiday at any city in the United States and what that would bring out. Now here are all these people coming to the worship of Artemis, coming many times into this uh, great Colosseum, where they uh, saw these plays and concerts and there were gatherings there to worship Artemis right at the, uh, at the foot of Mount Peon. Some of the... Uh, uh, remains, of these great temples in Ephesus, beautiful, magnificent places. The Colosseum uh, today, what exists of it, and it went up uh, further, it was it an was extensive, massive place. That's your setting in Ephesus. You can see where the gospel of Jesus Christ is beginning to have a direct effect upon the wallets of the Ephesians. And that's a problem. Verse 27, Demetrius continues, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Gentlemen, if we stand back and let Jesus continued to conquer hearts. Our trade will be discredited. This is a shame-based culture. Our trade will be discredited. The glory of Artemis will be dimmed and our prosperity and safety under her watchful eye will be lost. Artemis gave the Ephesians their sense of pride And if it was accepted that she had no power, Ephesus would be reduced to utter shame. This cannot happen. Demetrius, you'll notice, never stops to consider that perhaps Jesus really is Lord. Demetrius, pathetic goddess, is subject to dethronement by Jesus, and he seems to know it. But his real gods are money and free expression, and he refuses to let go and to admit that Christ is Lord. So as he stirs the pot, the city is thrown into confusion. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Resistance to the Gospel breaks out in open demonstration. Verse 29, So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. The raucous crowd fills the Arcadian Way, most likely entering into the theater. And these two men, not introduced to us earlier in the book of Acts, but are evidently converts of Paul's second missionary journey through Macedonia, have joined him on this journey. There was always a a large team that he traveled with for protection and for provision, and and also leaned very heavily on these who served in this way. As these two men find themselves sort of in the crowd's way, they just get hauled along with the press of the crowd, and they go into this, this great amphitheater. These men certainly had not signed on with Paul as an insurance policy for safety and security. They knew of the risks, and this had to be quite the ride, as you can imagine, getting pulled along by a raucous crowd that is bent on removing you as the problem in their city. Verse 30. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. The natural fear of bodily harm was overwhelmed by Paul's passion to make the truth known and to spare his friends. But he had other friends who said, not on your life. They're going to rip you limb from limb if you go into that place. There were disciples, these would be believers from Ephesus among Paul's team, among the missionaries that were serving there in Ephesus, but also the Asiarchs. Now that's an interesting comment, or interesting word. They were high-ranking members of the nobility elected to promote the imperial cult. There is no indication that they are necessarily believers. In fact, their work would indicate that they were not believers. What they were were important people. Highly revered officials, and Luke does not want their support of Paul to go unnoticed. Remember his apologetic bent at this point. Here are some of the most prominent individuals in your culture, and they're saying, Paul, we don't want you to be harmed. There's respect for Paul, even if there's not an embrace of Christ as Lord on their part, these Asiarchs. Paul is anxious to speak for Christ but he is restrained by those afraid that he would be killed. And so, verse 32, we continue, that some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is the perfect recipe for riot, isn't it? Emotions in overdrive, brains in neutral. They had no idea why they were shouting, but they really meant business. Here they are, just a confusion. They had no idea how Artemis' honor had been violated, but they rushed passionately to her defense. I mean, you know, nudging the guy next to us. Why exactly are we screaming again? What's going on here? All they know is something important's happening, and they want to be part of it. It's a very frightening place for Gaius and Aristarchus. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, most likely to say, we're different than these other Jews. These Christians and Jews aren't the same. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We don't have time to think too long on this point, but imagine being there two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They meant business. This is real zeal for their God. The crowd wanted nothing to do with a God-worshipping, idol-rejecting Jew right about then, and so for two hours they scream, many of them not even knowing why they're doing it. Henshin has the classic statement on this scene. He says in the final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is shout itself hoarse. Enter at this point some calm in the person of the town clerk who averts a riot. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. The town clerk was one of the highest local officials in Ephesus in charge of the official records of the city, a chief liaison to the Roman authorities. He basically says, people, let's calm down. No one is going to take away from Ephesus our position as temple keeper for Artemis. The stone that fell from the sky, different versions translate this differently because it's difficult to know how to translate the original here, but it might be a reference to a meteorite which could have been fashioned into the image of Artemis. There's some debate on that point now at this point, but some sense that Artemis had come from heaven, whatever that means. In any event, the clerk argues That the only thing jeopardizing the peace and prestige of Ephesus was not the Christians, it was the Ephesians who were in danger of riot. That is an important point that Luke is, I think, seeking for us to understand here. For you, verse 37, the clerk continues, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Perhaps the Asiarchs had in influenced the clerk to discern that the Christians had shown no overt disrespect to pagans and no blasphemous disregard to Artemis. And here again we see this tension in biblical Christianity. The Christians, according to the town clerk, are what? They're law-abiding, respectful citizens who seek to stir up no trouble in Ephesus. Ephesus. On the other hand, as Demetrius saw it, the Christian message laid waste to the very foundations on which paganism rested. In fact, the very economic standing of Ephesus was in danger because of this message. Who's right? They both are. They both are. Jesus... I think we can take by way of application, Jesus does not need witnesses who mock the world's idolatries or belittle people's religious beliefs. We see none of that with Paul. If your mind's sharp on that point and you're thinking, well, what about the prophets of the Old Testament as they spoke about idols? That was an in-house conversation. So don't think we see anywhere Christians among pagans belittling and mocking the idols of the world. We see them simply positively proclaiming Jesus Christ. Jesus does give us a message that will assault the very foundations of every idolatrous thing in our culture, of everything the world trusts in for safety and prosperity. It is that kind of a message. Respectful on the one hand and utterly damaging to the idols of this world without any apology because those idols are life-sucking frauds and they're killing people. But here's this conflict. Clerk says, I see no problem with what they've done. Demetrius says, you need to. But if... The town clerk continues, verse 38. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls, probably referring to the representatives of the proconsul. Let them bring charges against one another, but if that doesn't suffice, if you seek another further, seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So he's saying the case is open for further prosecution. But he's not going to tolerate a riot. People, listen, our harbor is filling with silt. It's kind of the unstated idea. Our economy is in trouble. But that is a pittance of the trouble we're going to bring on this fair city if we get Rome against us. Let's all settle down here and back away. There's a way to prosecute these men, and this isn't it. So this man acts with skill and with diplomacy, reminding the crowd there was an orderly legal process that they could follow. A representative of the proconsul or the legal assembly that gathered, it would appear, three times per month, they could wait for that if they sought to. Again, what is Luke's agenda? A reasonable, trusted official sees the folly of violence against the Christians. Everyone who is reasonable, everyone who is dignified, everyone with power in this scene is supportive of the Christians. In the sense of saying, give them freedom to speak and to be tried. It's those that are not using their brains that are against them. I believe that's an important point for Luke. He hopes that Roman officials will take note of this man's reasonableness. So, as we look at this, we ask the question, who's right? Well, the town clerk was right. Biblical Christians have always been law-abiding, government-respecting, loyal citizens of their respective nations. You have heard nothing else from the pulpit and the teaching classes of this church, and you never will. Biblical Christianity has no hidden agenda to overtake governments and incite social unrest. It always has in view the best interest of the nation in which its citizens live as aliens and pilgrims of a heavenly kingdom. My kingdom, said Jesus, is not of this world. And his loyal followers are comfortable working within the governmental structures of the nations and leaving those structures to thrive or fall under the common grace of God. We're at peace with that. We should be at peace with that. On the other hand, Demetrius is right. The message of biblical Christianity is not the mere offer of a ticket to heaven. Jesus never joins a community's gods on the idol shelf. Never. If the Jesus that we preach is not the sovereign ruler of the universe to whom every knee must bow and whose authoritative word we are responsible to obey, whose moral purity we love and emulate, then we have the wrong Jesus. He's not a Savior. He's just another idol. And there is a grave danger for those of us who gather as professors of faith in Jesus Christ. It is to see Jesus no differently than another idol. The Jesus of many Christians... I don't even like to say this, but i become more and more convinced is a God with a small g. I wonder if there are among us, I wonder how many there are among Gospel-preaching churches in our region and throughout the world where people are really worshiping Jesus as an idol because they want to gain security and prosperity and peace if it really came down to it, you can have Jesus or security, prosperity, and peace. They might hang their heads, but they wouldn't take Jesus. That is idolatry. And you get a ticket to heaven thrown in for free. Some of the evidences of this idolatry of Jesus is a life of hidden misery So many Christians are worshiping at the throne of the ideal mate. Worshiping at the throne of the perfect family. Worshiping at the throne of the God of money. Worshiping at the throne of the God of favorable circumstances. And when they say, great is Jesus, what they mean is great is my God who will give me what I want, even if they don't recognize it. The Jesus idol that provides security and freedom and prosperity. I ask you the question, where is that Jesus in Paul's heart right here? In Gaius's and Aristarchus's, where is that Jesus? There isn't any peace, security, freedom at all right now. Yet Paul is filled with zeal to run into that Colosseum and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Because his God's not freedom and peace and prosperity and security. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and the only source of joy and forgiveness. And if Jesus is Lord, then the truth is all other gods are life-sucking frauds, even the false Jesus that so many worship in our land. They're sucking you dry if you worship them. The only way anyone is going to be liberated by Jesus is to abandon the idolatries of this world in order to embrace Him and Him alone. And so I speak perhaps to some who have never truly done that. Maybe you've even acted the part of the good Christian. But have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you see who He truly is the one and only Creator and sovereign God? Do you see what He has done, offering His life as a sacrifice and atonement for sin and rising from the dead in bodily form to defeat Satan and death? Do you not only know that intellectually, but embrace that as the very core of your soul? Have you trusted Jesus as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only Savior? the only name by which we must be saved. This is a problem in our culture, and it's very subtle because there's so much talk about Jesus. It's a problem in other cultures as well. I remember talking to a missionary from Japan, and it was a great difficulty to recognize when a person had really come to faith in Christ. Until he came to realize that the connection was at this point. When a Japanese convert to Christ was willing to enter into the waters of baptism and so die to family worship, then they were in. That was the key, and that's where it finally dawned on him, that's when they really know Christ. Many Japanese Christians who would not come to baptism because of the offense it might cause What is it for us? Are you willing to love God, not money? Are you willing to love Jesus, not security? Are you willing to love Christ as Lord, not self? We need to let go of the cannonball of idolatry and reach out and receive Jesus' strong arm of rescue from the sea of sin. There is no other Lord and Savior. None. One more brief line of thought before we come before the table today. But what we should want as those who have trusted Christ as our Savior, if we are tracking with Luke's message at that point, it's not to overthrow governments or to overtake economies with Christian philosophy. What we should want above all is freedom for the Gospel. We should pray to that end. We should long to that end. Christianity is not a revolutionary force in man's kingdom. It is a spiritual force challenging not the structures of government as such, but conquering individual hearts such that the very structures of the culture are shaken to the core. What we need is freedom for the gospel to spread, and we need courage to spread it and let the chips fall where they may. That freedom is ours in this land and it is vital that we take advantage, realizing what has been given to us. We will be introducing very shortly a call for our entire church to join together in communion and to enter out into an evangelistic endeavor that's new for us as an assembly. As we go out into this culture, We are doing so because of the freedom of the Gospel and we need to take such opportunities and I encourage you to stay tuned and to join in and to be part of the work that Jesus is doing to rescue souls. The original idea of separation of church and state in this culture was not to impose religion. It was not to restrict the freedoms of citizens. That was the idea. Baptists particularly lauded these provisions. The concept that religion would never influence the culture or the government or economies is itself a religious belief. And it is a belief that is being imposed upon us by our culture, by our government. Worship Jesus in private? Great. Keep it quiet. Begin to speak of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the public square, we get real nervous. Much of this flies under the banner of the separation of church and state, but more of it, I think, flies under the banner of the idols of America. I don't see much difference in us and Corinth. They loved immorality. This nation is drunk on immorality. They love the safety that Artemis would give. Pictured by her place being this place of repair for criminals to come and find safety. That's what we want. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. And like the Ephesians, we want to be prosperous. And when Christians come in with a message, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, people will realize that's crushing these idols. And maybe it's something we need to realize as well. Maybe you need to realize. We should not be surprised then when people get upset. We should continue to pray for the kingdom-crushing, life-giving freedom of the Gospel of Jesus Christ who is crucified for our redemption, raised for our justification. We should pray then for freedom in this land for the Gospel to spread. We should be people who are constantly praying for the freedom of the Gospel in restricted countries. We might love it if an Islamic regime would fall or if a communist regime would fall. If that's what God uses to bring down the walls, wonderful, but that's not our ultimate concern. Our ultimate prayer should simply be for the freedom of the Gospel that it would be free to spread, that people would hear the message. What we need is not security and prosperity and freedom. What we need is the life-transforming message of Jesus to conquer souls for whom Jesus died. And may He find us in prayer and may He find us in witness until every voice in heaven and earth and sea says in unison... Great is Jesus of the universe. Let's bow. Father, we bow our heads in unison before Your Lordship. I pray that it's not a ritual. I ask God that every heart would realize there's something deep within that says this is right. There is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I pray that every one of us may be able to say with a heart resonating with love and thanks, great is Jesus. And I pray that we take that song right to the time when we bow before Him and with great joy and gladness confess Jesus as Lord. There are some among us, I am confident, who are not prepared for that day. And I pray, God, that this warning would not go unheeded. I pray that you would conquer any heart that is in rebellion against Christ and is crying out, great is me. And great are my pleasures and great are my securities. And I pray, God, that you'd conquer that heart today. We pray, Lord, that we might be free to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even though we probably well could use direct persecution and resistance. We do pray in your mercy that you'd keep the door open in this great land. And we pray for those nations that are restricted in the gospel. We pray that whether by bringing the wall down or going right over top, that you will continue to permit the Gospel of Christ to be preached. And Lord, today, we prepare here to proclaim it as we come before the Lord's table. This is a direct act by which we may proclaim to the watching angels and to one another that Jesus was crucified for our redemption, that He was raised and will come again until he comes, we observe this table to say, Here, Jesus is Lord. I pray that you'd meet us in our worship. May we meditate on what the Spirit is teaching us. Amen.